The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. As I mentioned in my prayer, we're looking tonight at Exodus 6, but I'm going to begin tonight and ask that you turn to Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to be doing some work in Hebrews uh, tonight. Um, as many of you know, we're studying Hebrews in uh, our Thursday Bible study and men's group uh, that God is blessing in a wonderful way, and we're going verse by verse through the book of Hebrews, and have found it to be an incredibly deep book. Um, but one of the themes in the book of Hebrews is the need for assurance of faith, full assurance of faith. So look at Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 22. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author is giving a series of exhortations, and they all begin with the phrase in the English, let us. For example, it says in verse 22, Hebrews 10:22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So that's the first. There are three of them. Verse 23 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And then verse 24, Let us consider one another. It would be a better translation. Let us consider one another how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. This verse 22, let us uh, draw near to God, is probably the main exhortation of the book. And there's a comparison uh, between the Old and the New Covenant. We're going to be talking about that tonight. Our God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And we're going to see that in Exodus 6. But I want to begin by looking at this concept of a full assurance of faith. A sense of confidence in the presence of God. A sense of confidence to face the challenges of our lives. This is a very important theme in the book of Hebrews. And it's an important theme in Exodus chapter 6. It seems that God labors to give Christians, to give believers, a full assurance of faith. A supreme confidence that God is faithful to his word. Turn over one other page probably in your Bible to Hebrews 10 verse 35. <clears throat> it says, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Stop there. Do you see it? So confidence is something that you can have and also something apparently you can throw away. A good confidence in the presence of God. A confidence in verse 22 that God wants you to draw near to him. That he wants you to be very close. And that it is well with your soul. And that God is pleased with you. And that your sins are forgiven. And that you're going to go to heaven when you die. And that your life is well pleasing to him. And that he can use you for eternal benefit here on earth. These things are of great importance in the kingdom of God. And we can have a full and rich and certain assurance of faith. A confidence in the presence of God. We can also throw it away. How do we throw away our confidence? Well, we throw it away through sin. We really do. Through being lazy in our spiritual lives, through being negligent, by, for example, in Hebrews 10, neglecting to assemble ourselves together, not going to church, not reading scripture. When you read it, you hear things from God, 
and he's telling you to do things and then you harden your heart and don't obey and don't listen. These are a variety of the ways that we throw away our confidence. But God here in Hebrews is laboring to give us a good confidence. And why? Look at Hebrews 10.36. It says you need to persevere. You need to persevere. That's why you need a full assurance of faith. That's why you need good confidence because if you don't, your perseverance will flag. You'll grow weary and you'll stop doing the things that God has called you to do. Now turn over to Exodus chapter 6 and you'll see how it connects to the situation with Moses. You see, what happened is God called Moses to do something extraordinary. You know, the fact of the matter is God is calling all of us to do something extraordinary. Every single one of us. It's true, he's calling you to live a supernatural life, a life unlike anyone around you who doesn't know Christ as Lord and Savior. For example, when Jesus at the end of Matthew chapter 5 commands that we should love our enemies, he uses as an example pagans and tax collectors and says, they love their friends. They love people that are nice to them. If you do that, what are you doing more than others? You see? What's the implication? What's the logic? You should be doing more than others. You should be living a higher life, a supernatural life, a unique life. And so you're called to do something unique. You're called to walk with Christ and bear good fruit for him in this world. Fruit that will last, Jesus said, and prove yourself to be my disciples. So you need to persevere. You need to do the work that God's called you to do, a supernatural work. Well, in the same way, uh, maybe you, you would say, no, I'm not in the same way. But anyway, Moses and Aaron will call to do a supernatural work. To stand before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And then to be wonder workers through the power of God. And with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, God led his people out, but did it through human instrumentality, through Moses and Aaron. Well, you might think, well, how, what is the comparison between my life and that of Moses and Aaron? Well, actually, Jesus said, greater works than I will you do because I go to the Father. So if we're doing greater works according to Jesus, greater works than even Jesus, how much greater are we doing works than Moses and Aaron? They physically led a people out of Egypt, but we hold out eternal life to people. That people through the hearing of the gospel might survive judgment day and go on into eternity. That's exciting. But you need to persevere, don't you? Just like Moses and Aaron. And if we don't have full assurance of faith, if we don't have confidence, we're going to flag, we're going to fail, we're going to get weary, we're going to get discouraged. Well, how do we see that in Moses? Well, look at the end of chapter 5. What happened is... Uh, in chapter 5, Moses and Aaron begin this great work of Exodus, begin this great work of bringing the people of God out and into the promised land, but it doesn't go well at first, does it? It's not smooth sailing. I don't think God wanted it to be smooth sailing, not at all. We've got ten plagues to go through and then the Red Sea. We're not going to have smooth sailing, we're going to have incredible trials and opposition so that I can show myself to be strong and powerful through that opposition. Not going to be smooth sailing. But Moses, you need to persevere. It's not meant to be easy. It's not meant to be comfortable for you. Well, Moses, I don't think, fully understood that. And so uh, when Pharaoh commanded that bricks be made without straw and things got immediately much worse for all the people uh, that were slaves, they, they had the same quota of bricks, but they had to get their own straw, their own building materials. And the, they felt the lash of the taskmaster right across their back and it was getting worse and worse. Then the Israelites turned on Moses and Aaron and said, May the Lord judge you for what you've done. You've made us a stench to the Egyptians. You know, we have to get along with them. They're our taskmasters. They didn't understand. It's not going to be for long. They said, You've made us a stench. To the oh, you're going to be worse than a stench. You're going to be... <laughs> Pharaoh's going to expel you from his country. Okay? That's how, how bad you're going to smell to him. 
okay? But that's what they said. And so at this moment, Moses gets very discouraged and goes to God in prayer. And look at chapter 5, verse 22. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Now, what attitude is Moses praying this prayer with? This is a sinful prayer. There's nothing else to say about it. It's a prayer of unbelief. But at least he's praying. At least he's faithful to talk to God. Whereas the Israelites didn't talk to God at all. They went to Pharaoh and tried to make things better. <clears throat> so he's praying. And he's discouraged and he's downcast. And God hasn't done anything at all. And so we begin in chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses, <clears throat> Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens. Uh, moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with an uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Stop there. So God is speaking to Moses. And he's encouraging him. Isn't God gracious? Isn't he patient with us? When we are so weak, we go through trials and difficulties and we begin to murmur against the Lord and challenge him and chafe against him. Since the time I first went to Pharaoh until now, you've done nothing. Well, I wonder how long that was. Are we talking a few days or a week or two? Not very long. <clears throat> Excuse me. They had uh, expected at this point an instant deliverance, but it wasn't coming. And God, instead of casting Moses off, instead of judging him or even killing him for his impertinence, instead he's patient with him. And he turns him back again to the word. And this is what I want to say to you. Whenever you do not have full assurance of faith, whenever your faith is wavering, where do you need to go? You have to go to the word. The word is the, is, the, is the source of your faith. It's where it first came from. Faith comes from hearing the word. Faith is also replenished by the word. It's not replenished by prayer. prayer. Not first. It's replenished by the word. You go to the word, to the promises of God, and restore your faith. And then pray them back to God. And little by little, you will find your faith restored and strengthened. And so... Uh, he gives him the word again. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of the country. Instead of giving up on Moses, he restores him by his word and by his promise. He also restores his focus. Moses was looking to himself. And we're going to see that again later in the chapter. Moses is constantly looking at himself, or at least tempted to. You know, how are they going to believe me? Because I speak with faltering lips. Again, the focus, again and again, pulling toward ourselves. He says, no, he's not going to let you out because of your speaking ability. No, he's going to let you out. As a matter of fact, he's going to drive you out because of my mighty hand, because of the things that I do. Look again at verse 1. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. 
Boy, that's ominous, isn't it? If I were Pharaoh and heard about that, I'd say, what are you going to do to me? Well, wait till you see. Now you will see what I will do. Stand back and watch the deliverance of the Lord. That's what he's saying. You will see what I will do. And then he says, because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of the country. And so he underscores that it is only by God's power that this exodus occurs. So it is for your souls. Only by the mighty hand of God do you go to heaven. You can't earn your salvation. You can't survive death and judgment. Not at all. But only by God's mighty hand do we have any hope. Thankfully, he has extended his mighty hand in Jesus Christ. So we have eternal life. But he says, because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. And then we get a, a, a new revelation, a new development in verse 1. Not only will he let them go, let my people go, not only will he let them go, but he will drive them out of his country. This is a new revelation. It hasn't been spoken before. What it means is that Pharaoh will be so eager and urgent to get you out of here that he will drive you out of the country. Now, in order for that to occur, we've got to travel some distance, don't we? We've got to change Pharaoh's heart. We've got to see Pharaoh's heart transform so that there is somewhat of a building up force and then an escape velocity to get you expelled from his country. And it's only going to be by God's mighty hand. Notice he also speaks with absolute certainty. This is the way God speaks. Not, now you will see what I might do to Pharaoh. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Not because of my mighty hand he may let them go. No, because of my mighty hand he will most certainly let them go. Not because of my mighty hand he may drive them out of the country. But he most certainly will drive them out. So this is the certainty of the Word of God. Whenever you have a flagging or failing faith and confidence, go back to the Word of God because this is how God speaks to us. With absolute certainty, full assurance of faith comes from believing God's Word. It says in Isaiah 55:11, So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish the purpose for which I send it. That is the way that God speaks. And so in verse 2, God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, if you were to go through the book of Exodus and indeed through the whole Pentateuch and find the number of times from this point forward that he says this phrase, I am the Lord, I think you'd run out of ink before you ran out of phrases. Again and again, God speaks and says, I am the Lord. That is my name. Again and again, he speaks. But here there's a little bit of a mystery. By the name God Almighty, El Shaddai, I revealed myself to your ancestors. But I did not reveal myself, he says in verse 4, did not make myself known to them by my name, the Lord. Now, we've mentioned this before, but if you look in your, in your English translation, whenever you have the word Lord in all caps, usually it's a different kind of font there, L-O-R-D, that is God's special name, his covenant name, which we could transliterate Yahweh, which sometimes is translated Jehovah. And he's saying in this verse, by that name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is problematic. It's actually very difficult. And why so? Because this name, Yahweh, is all over the book of Genesis. Go back, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2. And in verse 4... <clears throat> It says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Stop there. Now, what do you notice there in verse 4? Do you see that L-O-R-D, capital letters? That is Yahweh. 
when, and it's actually both names at that point, Yahweh Elohim, there's a sense of, of power here in creation. So there, right away, at the beginning of the Bible, we have Yahweh. Some people have said, okay, then if we're going to understand the Exodus verse in which it says, I did not make myself known to them, all right, well, Moses came later and he wrote the account in Genesis, so he put God's name in there. And so it's, it's, uh, he's looking back and putting or inserting the covenant name of God here. Um, but that doesn't really work because in Genesis chapter 4, Eve actually uses the name, takes the name of the Lord on her lips. Look at uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Stop there. Do you see that? In Genesis 4.1, again, you've got L-O-R-D in capital letters. It's Yahweh. So with the help of Yahweh, I have brought forth a man, <laughs> child. Uh, that's Cain. Now, she didn't have vocabulary for children, I guess, at that point. You know, this is a new thing. It's a little man thing, you know. <laughs> Named him Cain, all right? But, uh, you know, just trying to work it out. Um, but she uses the name of the Lord here. Uh, even more troubling for us uh, is in Genesis chapter 15. Go there if you would. And this is the chapter in which God makes the very covenant that he's referring to here. In Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, you know, I don't know if you've noticed how many times we go back to this chapter. This is one of the great and significant chapters in the Bible. Because here God makes his covenant with Abram. This is the place where Abram is saved according to uh, Romans uh, chapter 4. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He is our paradigm of faith. He hears a promise from God and believes. But what you're going to notice is that the Lord speaks to uh, Abram in this same way. Chapter uh, 15, verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now you see that in 15.1, L-O-R-D, the capital letters there. That is Yahweh. And he says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? Now stop there. What do you notice? There is Abram calling this name, calling the name of Yahweh. It's the very same name that Shem had built an altar to earlier, I'm sorry, that Seth had built an altar to earlier and called on the name of the Lord. Same one in Genesis chapter 5. But now here he takes the name of the Lord on his lips and says, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I'm child, childless? And then uh, the word of the Lord came to him in verse 4. Uh, this man, uh, Eliezer of Damascus, will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body. And he took him outside and said, Look up the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, see the word Lord there, and, it, and he credited to him as righteousness. So this is the name of the Lord, right in the salvation verse for Abram. He believed the Lord and, and uh, he credited to him as righteousness. And then in verse 7, he also said to him, I am the Lord. Do you notice that? He tells him his name. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And from that point on, we have the covenant-making ceremony. And so now go back to Exodus. Keep, put a piece of paper or something here in Genesis 15. We're going to come back to it later on this evening, God willing. But um, look back now at Exodus chapter 6 in verse 2 and 3. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. 
but by my name the Lord I did not make myself known to them. Now what does that mean? That's difficult, isn't it? Well, you didn't think it was difficult before I carry you through those verses, but now you realize how difficult it was. But I'd rather know the truth and know when there's hard verses, and this is a hard verse. I think what it means is this. Some have said that they actually never knew the name Lord, but all of those were written back into the account. But I think that that really does, does uh, despot or it damages the, the text when you read it. It just reads as though they are calling on the name of the Lord. I think instead what it means is that by the name of the Lord, I did not fully reveal myself. I made promises, but I didn't see them through. I didn't finish them. Take a minute and look at Hebrews 11 verse 13 and you'll see what I mean. Hebrews 11 and verse 13. Let me begin at 11.11. By faith Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. That is the key to faith, by the way. That we trust the one who makes the promise. That's the essence. And, and that's really the whole lesson that I'm trying to get across here in Exodus chapter 6 tonight. That our God is faithful to his promises. And we should not flag or fail or grow discouraged or weary if it seems as though there are obstacles to those promises. Of course there are obstacles. God wants to show himself powerful in getting you through those obstacles. He's going to bring up the obstacles. They're not popping up from the devil. God brings up the obstacles and then overcomes them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He is powerful and strong. But we have to believe that he is faithful who made the promise. We'll continue in verse, uh, verse 12. And so from this one man, Abraham, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Now look at verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. That's a very important verse, isn't it? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they lived in tents. Even in the promised land, they had to beg for a piece of land that they could pitch their tents on. And so they were living at the hospitality of their neighbors, the Canaanites. And so they didn't really own the land. They had to buy a burial site for Sarah, for example, a cave. And they had to dicker over the price, even though it was their, their land given them by God, but not yet, because the sin of the Amorites hadn't reached its full measure yet. And so they were strangers in, in the promised land and they, and they dwelt as aliens and strangers and they admitted that they were. So they hadn't received anything from God and so God was just a promise maker at that point, not a promise keeper. Now, in the time of Moses is the time for the keeping of the promise. Do you see that? So go back in Exodus 6 and he says, I did not fully reveal myself to them as a promise keeping God. They had to just trust my word. They had to believe, they had to look at the stars and trust me that, that offspring would be as numerous as the stars. And they had to believe the covenant-making ceremony that they would inherit the land. Abram had to believe the ceremony. Then Isaac, who wasn't even there at the time of the ceremony, had to believe the word that his father told him. And Jacob had to believe what his grandfather and father told him. They had to just believe words. They had to believe promises. And so they knew the name Lord, Yahweh. They knew the name, but they didn't see him fulfill his promise. Not yet. But now at last the time has come. And God knows that the time has come. And he's going to reiterate the covenant promise here in Exodus 6. He said, I'm going to give you the land. The time is here. It's now. 
time has come to believe. And what's so important is that the people believe it, that the people accept it. And you know why? Because if they don't, they're not going to enter the promised land. They're not going to make it. Somebody else will go. And who will go? Their children will go. They won't go. And so they need to believe the promise or else they won't, they won't enter. They'll be left behind. That's why it's so vital to hear the promise and believe. But he says, by the name, Lord, I did not fully reveal myself because I made the promise, but it wasn't kept yet. Now's the time for the keeping of the promise. Now, if you can come up with a better explanation of that verse, okay. I'd be willing to listen, but that's my best effort. In Exodus 6.3. But he's revealing himself now. The time has come, not just to be a covenant-making God, but to be the actual covenant-keeping God. Look at verse 4. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens. Our God is a God of covenants, and that's true even now. Even now, he's a God of covenant. Now, what is a covenant? It's a binding agreement between two or more parties. There are different kinds of covenants. There are, there are uh, unilateral covenants that God just makes. He makes a covenant. And then there are conditional covenants in which we have to keep the stipulations of the covenant. But there are covenants. And we Baptists don't tend to think about this as much as our Presbyterian brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't think much about the covenant. But do you realize you're saved by a covenant? That's how you get saved. Our Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took a cup in his hand, a cup of, of wine. And he said, uh, giving significance to it in Luke 22, verse 20, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. And there Jesus spoke these words, the new covenant. That's where we get the word New Testament. Testament and covenant in Old English is the same word. And so we are saved in the new covenant, the covenant of Jesus' blood. The Apostle Paul added weight to this when he said in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But the new covenant book in the New Testament is the book of Hebrews. Take a minute and look at Hebrews 7, uh, verse 22. You know, we Baptists tend to think only of uh, just uh, personal faith in Christ, that we each individually have to have faith, and so we don't baptize our children for this reason. Uh, we have a different view of the community of faith than Presbyterians and other paedo-baptists or infant baptizers do. And I am a Baptist, and I believe that what was physical in the Old Covenant is spiritual in the New. And there is no physical symbol of membership in the covenant community. Water baptism and circumcision are not directly compatible. That's why we don't baptize our infants the way that the Israelites circumcise their children. But the Presbyterians disagree with this. But I think that we should still understand and embrace the fact that we are saved by means of a covenant. Look at Hebrews 7, verse 22. In Hebrews 7, 22, the author to Hebrews says, Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. See, it's not just a new covenant. In the book of Hebrews, it's a better covenant. As a matter of fact, it's a much better covenant. And this whole thing is unfolded for us beautifully in, in uh, Hebrews 8. Look over one chapter in Hebrews 8, verse 6. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, and it's founded on better promises. We get better promises. Isn't that wonderful? The Israelites got some great promises. We get better promises in the new covenant. That's, that's remarkable. You think, whoa, what a spectacle to see all of those plagues and to, and to walk through the Red Sea. 
No, you get better promises than that. You get promises of eternal life, of a promised land that will never be taken from you. But keep reading in Hebrews 8. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I'll forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins. No more. Three great elements to the new covenant that makes it superior to the old. Complete and total forgiveness of sins. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Did you get that in the old covenant? Not at all. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. Never. It was just symbolic. Secondly, I will be their God and they will be my people. This, we begin now as a down payment through the indwelling spirit. But when we see God face to face, When we have been made perfect and we see God face to face, then you will know how much superior the new covenant is to the old. For the old covenant never, never got, got the people close to God, never brought them close. As a matter of fact, the old covenant was about barriers and obstacles to coming close to God. Holy of holies and the curtain in the temple. All of those things separating the people from God. And then thirdly, I will take my laws and write them in your minds and on your hearts. I'll transform you from within. That's a superior covenant, isn't it? And it is a covenant. You ought to go through Hebrews 8 and circle the number of times that the word covenant is there. And then one more verse in Hebrews. Hebrews 13, verse 20 and 21. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the, what does it say? Eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What does it call the covenant there? It is an eternal covenant. And by the same covenant, the Old Testament saints were saved through simple faith, through faith in the promises. And that's why it's so vital, go back now to uh, Exodus 6, why it's so vital for the people to believe what God is saying here in this chapter. They're going to hear the message. They're going to hear, in effect, the gospel. But the sad thing is, it's going to do the majority of them no good at all. Because they didn't combine it with faith. And because they heard that message and did not combine it with faith, they did not enter the promised land, did they? They died in the desert. When the spies brought back the report from the land and they heard that report, they did not believe God. And God said, fine, your children will enter and you will die in the desert. And they did die. They did not enter. And they serve as a warning to us. It's not enough to just hear the promises of God. It's not enough to be in a place where you're hearing clearly expounded the promises of God. You have to believe it for yourself or you'll never enter. And so that's the message of Exodus chapter 6. Here in Exodus, God is reminding Moses of the covenant that he made. Look at verses 5 through 8. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. 
and I will bring you to the land that I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. I just read for you a sevenfold promise that God is making to the people. He, he tells them seven things he's going to do for them. And so if they're wavering through unbelief, oh, and they were, as they were out there collecting their own straw for their bricks, and what does God give them? Does he give them signs and wonders? Does he give them miracles? No. He gives them words first. Just words. Just promises. He says, I'm going to do seven things for you. Number one, he says, I'm going to bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Number two, I'm going to free you from being slaves at all. You're not going to trade one master for another, but you're going to be free from slavery entirely. Thirdly, I'm going to redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. This is the exact same word used of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. I'm going to act as your kinsman redeemer. I'm going to buy you to myself. In fact, I'm going to betroth you to myself. I will be your redeemer. Number four, I will take you to be my own people. You will be my people. And then number five, I will be your God. That's a covenant relationship, like a marriage. You will be my people and I will be your God. And number six, I'm going to bring you into the land. And not just any land, but the land I swore with uplifted hand. Do you know why he's saying this? He's saying, remember who I am. All you have from me right now are promises. But I swore with an uplifted hand by oath to give it to Abraham's descendants. I will keep my promise. So even if tomorrow you have to gather twice as much straw or make three times the number of bricks, don't get discouraged because I'm going to bring you out into the promised land. And then number seven, I will give you that land to be your inheritance. It will be your possession and that of your descendants. Isn't that beautiful? A sevenfold promise. And so as they're wavering through unbelief, as they're weak in their faith, he gives them promises and tells them to believe. That's all. Simply believe. Verse 9, Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him. Is that not heartbreaking? It is heartbreaking. And it's heartbreaking because of what I've alluded to already, what they're going to do, because they never change. They never do believe the promise, sadly. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, it says, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. How sad is our natural state? Our natural hearts are unbelieving hearts. Naturally, we have hearts of stone that do not trust and believe the promises of God. And so the Israelites are clear evidence of that. The staff into the serpent and the hand becoming leprous and then unleprous again, that was enough for a little while, but it didn't last. It didn't survive the test, did it? And so it's tragic how they listened to the promises, but they did not listen to them because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. You see that in verse 9? What caused them to unbelieve? It was because of their discouragement. So therefore, Hebrews 10 is important, isn't it? Don't throw away your confidence. Stay close to God and have full assurance of faith so that you can draw near to God and stay close to Him through the trials that God will bring your way. And they will come. In this world, you will have trouble, said Jesus. But take heart, I've overcome the world. He's going to bring trials. 
Now in verses 10 through 13, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. Now let me ask you a question. The people didn't believe Moses, did they? And now God says to Moses, Well, go and tell Pharaoh. I've already told you he's not going to listen. So the word of the Lord's against you in this matter. You're going to go and speak, and I can guarantee he will not listen to you. Moses picks up on this in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? Again, Moses' focus is where? On himself, on his own speaking ability. Moses himself continues to struggle with unbelief. The time has come, though, for God to act. The time has come. Everybody's waiting. There's nothing more to be done. The promises have been made. Everybody's waiting. The time has come for God to act. And he's going to act. Verse 13. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh king of Egypt. And he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Now we have an interruption. Now it, as Gentiles we can't understand why in the world we'd stick a genealogy in here. Alright. I mean that just seems a little strange. But you have to realize how important these genealogies were to the Jews. Because the promises came down the line to Abraham's seed, who are going to be as numerous as the stars. And so these genealogies are important for establishing God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. And also for establishing who it is that God was working through. Now, I've debated whether I was going to read the genealogy. I practiced it while you guys were singing, and I, I would give myself a B-plus on the name. So I'm going to skip it. But you can go ahead and read them later on. But one thing that I think is worth noting is the fact that God gives us the number of years that, that Moses' ancestors lived. I think that's important. Because it says that Levi, in verse 16, lived 137 years. Kohath lived 133 years. Kohath is Moses' grandfather. Amram, in verse 20, lived 137 years. Amram, by the way, married his aunt. So, you know, the law of Moses hadn't been given yet. Later, that's going to be illegal. But uh, so also, um, uh, Abram married his half-sister. And so those things got cleaned up with the law of Moses. But that's just how it was. Uh, Jochebed was uh, Amram's aunt. And so together, they had Moses and Aaron. But uh, you get this listing of, of years. And I think it goes back. I told you to put something in Genesis 15. Go back to Genesis 15, verse 13. And it says, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. 400 years. And then, Genesis 15:16. in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, I have read conservative commentaries that say that there's no way they were in Egypt for 400 years. Because they say it's four generations, at most it's 100 years. But realize, generations were different back then. If you add up the years, you're well over 400 years from these four. We don't know how old Levi was when they actually came down into Egypt. But uh, it's well within the possibilities that they were there 400 years. Why is it that we so quickly sell our birthright to make ourselves acceptable to the academic world? The fact is, why don't we just simply believe what it says? 400 years, four generations. That's what it says. He said it twice. 1513, 400 years. 1516, four generations. And so it was. From Levi down to Moses was the fourth generation. God is faithful to his words. 
In verse 26 it says, It was this same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. It was this same Moses and Aaron. So now we've established who they are through the genealogy. And then in verse 28, Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, Since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? This is a recapitulation. So basically that genealogy was a parenthesis a brief in, uh, intermission in which he's establishing who these people were, who met Moses and Aaron uh, were. So God willing, next time we're going to get into the actual plagues as God moves in a mighty way to bring his people out of Egypt. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.